Katie, how's it going? Well, Jesse, sort of dark days around here all across the world. And I know that you as an empathetic person have been pretty stressed about what's going on over in uh, Ukraine. So I uh, I did you a favor and I uh, I enlisted you in the army. You did? Yeah, you're in the gamer division. The gamer division of the, of the Russian army. <laughs> you're no, I I enlisted you in the in the resistance. You're you're going to Ukraine and you're gonna you're gonna stream on Twitch as a uh, very large, noticeable, slow man who was very scared. The one time he fired military grade weaponry with John Stokes, friend of the podcast. I think I I think I'm who the Ukrainian army needs right now. <laughs> we can end this today. We can end this today, Jesse. Katie. I can't believe you would joke about this. Okay, so I actually wanted to talk to you about this. Is it okay to joke during a time no. of trauma? <laughs> during pride? <laughs> and during during war month and during war month. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask you this because I've made a couple jokes about what's going on in Ukraine. Not actually jokes about Ukrainians or even Russians. The, the butt of my jokes are generally like, it's you first, it's me second, third people on social media who think that virtue signaling on social media has any impact on the world. So those are generally who I'm like making jokes about. Like one of my jokes, I think my best one was retweet to stop Putin. Did it work? (laughs) How many did you get? Occupy Democrats liked it. Um, So I I, really, I don't know if they did, but I have lost, I've lost like 500 followers (laughs) since the war started, since the invasion of Ukraine. This is the the real cost of the invasion. This is the real cost. There I go, making the joke. Because people think that it's really distasteful to make jokes and, 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 in moments of war. And I understand that, but I just actually want to address this for a minute because I think this actually is important. First of all, we should say thoughts and prayers to the people of Ukraine. Of course, that has no makes no material dif- difference at all in the world, but I do want to say like what's happening there is truly horrific. It fucking sucks. Uh, and I'm concerned about it. I'm deeply concerned about it. I'm concerned about it for Ukraine. I'm just concerned about it for the people of Russia who didn't ask to live under this fucking dictator and didn't ask to go out and kill, have, be forced to go kill their neighbors. So just in the spirit of that, just like a hearty fuck Putin from uh, from Locked and Reported. Um, but I also think that it's okay to make jokes in times of national crisis. And in fact, that's how a lot of people, including myself, deal with shitty events. I am at my funniest at a funeral or as soon as I get diagnosed with cancer, I will start doing stand up like that to me. That is how that I deal with with trauma. And I think a lot of people do. And I don't think there's anything wrong wrong with that. And especially if your jokes don't actually hurt anybody, which most most jokes don't. And yeah. also Ukrainians, I think, are famous for their dark senses of humor. Or, or is that Russians? I mean, it's all the same, same thing. thing. Same the entire thing. part of the world has had to adapt with a very morbid sense of humor because of it's just I mean, just like crack a history book. I'm not saying that to you. And you, like, yes, they do. They have very morbid senses of humor. Yes. So uh, I'm going to continue to make jokes on social media. Um, if you need to opt out of following me on Twitter, then I completely understand that. But I don't think that this like is the sign of being a bad person or an unsympathetic person. I think it's just a sign of of dealing with things in a particular way and also having a bad person. Personality, which I do. I, I admit that I do. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think you basically can't have it that way. If you're going to do it, you do and make fun of it. Um, I don't think there's any. I think people are pretty inconsistent about this. Like they'll laugh along at jokes about everything, and then you'll hit some. Like we've had people get mad when we made fun of Christians or Mormons after laughing sure. along to years of of your anti-Semitism. <laughs> um, uh, 
but obviously from your point of view, you can't, you can't, you're not complaining, but you can't complain to people then get offended by it because you want to make jokes during a time of crisis. No, I I think it's totally understandable for people to get offended and say, I'm not going to fucking follow you anymore. That's totally fine. Um, But I'm not going to stop doing it because I don't know how to, like, that's how I handle things. I don't know what else to do. What am I supposed to do? Like read NPR self-care guide, like breathe (laughs) deeply. No, I'm going to post. That's what I do. I post. I hope, I hope. NPR listeners are doing okay during this hard time. I cannot imagine they, they are surviving the onslaught of bad news. They're besieged by negative stories. I really hope they're doing okay. Do you want to explain what that's about? Yeah, I guess I should. No, NPR just did a tweet storm that was like, self-care if you're overwhelmed by uh, the bad news coming out of Ukraine, which I found to be so much more distasteful than like any of your bad jokes about Ukraine. I don't Thank know. You. It's just like the, of course, if you're so... If the news is making you so sad and depressed that you're ceasing to function, A, you should you should get help. But B, yeah, turn it off, go for a walk. That's fine. But um, I found that so tone deaf. Like fucking – there's a wave of mi- like migrants fleeing Ukraine and you're tweeting about like Park Slope dads who are getting freaked out. I, I just I, – I find self-care culture pretty – gruesome. The thing that I loved about this was that Fox News did the exact same thing. Here's a headline from then. Identifying stress and anxiety amid Russia-Ukraine war and how to cope. <laughs> you guys need to get together and like have a have a fucking meditation tent or something. Katie, what is the name of this very offensive podcast? This is Blocked and Reported and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And yeah, I guess just on this subject, I... I don't really think the war in Ukraine should change what we do much. I think the biggest mistake outlets make, and we've we've told some stories about this, is like deciding that they have to talk about the thing everyone else is talking about. I do think here or there there'll be like points of overlap where where we can mention this or that. Um, like I will say, just as a connoisseur of internet bullshit, the tweets trying to somehow tie people's like personal grievances or political views in with this and to sort of like blame them for the um for the invasion or to or say they played a major causal role and i saw a lot of this with regard to wokeness which is just hilarious on so many levels i mean one of which is wait wait you don't think this is because kamala harris puts her pronouns in her bio <laughs> i think you don't think putin got an email from kamala and said fuck it i'm going in yeah exactly as soon as he saw the the she her uh i think basically it's been since Trump was elected, a lot of people's brains have melted in really embarrassing public manners. And this is just the latest example of that. And there was a whole thread about people blaming it on everything from white supremacy to toxic masculinity. But I think the way a lot of people who who have some good faith critiques of like you, you and I agree, there is like this weird thing, moral panic going on in liberal institutions. It's part of the reason this podcast exists to critique that. That doesn't mean that that's the whole world or that's the only thing in the world. It's arrogant to think that this is all because of of America's culture wars. I mean, I do think that anybody speculating on Putin's motives who isn't an expert on him personally or on Russian history is going to probably look foolish. And I include myself in that category. I do think it's possible that he perceives the United States as weak now because we are a country at war with itself in some ways in these cultural ways. But this idea that, yes, that Putin is sees what's happening in our cultural institutions and says now is the time to invade Ukraine is just it's fucking it's narcissistic and maybe that's maybe it's true again i don't know what's going on in his brain but it seems incredibly like 
one-sided and narcissistic to me. I, I mean, okay. First of all, it seems obvious that from Putin's point of view, his uh, calculus is different with Biden rather than Trump in the Oval, Oval Office. Yeah. Trump, they're, they're buddies, Trump and Putin. There was obviously exaggerated Russiagate stuff, but they're friends. They, they like each other. And I, I do think Putin maybe would have acted differently with without Biden in office. But that doesn't yeah. mean you can be like, oh, I guess we should only elect people who are friends with dictators so the dictators don't do bad. I mean, that that doesn't mean imply anything normatively about who we should vote for. But if you're going to say America's culture wars played an impact in Putin's decision making, I just why would you jump to that rather than the Iraq war, for example, trillion or trillions of dollars, maybe a million. How How is that not a bigger sort of open gaping wound in America's credibility and a bigger source of discord than pronouns. I, I just think the the cherry picking of the thing you're already obsessed with rather than a million other ways in which America's, you know, has been weakened over the years is just is very silly. It has been interesting to see these very dramatic shifts in a, a number of, of uh, prominent conservatives who are praising Putin and talking about the weakness of the American American military. Wouldn't have seen that six years ago. That was like <laughs> watching Tucker Carlson basically say, "I mean, this yeah. is the most brain melted of all." Like, has uh, Putin ever tried to get you fired or to dictate what you can say? Actually, he did. He did actually. <laughs> he tried to get me fired from Whole Foods. He, I served him a, a lukewarm coffee, and he tried to get me fired. Uh, this coffee is no good. <laughs> is that a good Putin impression? That was great. Was he was he shirtless on a horseback? No, he was just had a Russian a Russian flag draped around his neck. That's just that line of has has Putin ever tried to get you in trouble or get you fired? <laughs> like you could if you directed that at any Russian, it would be like, yes, that is a legitimate concern. I can get in trouble. And seeing other people say this is about toxic masculinity is also equally <laughs> oh fucking stupid. Oh my god, Kate Man, that was yeah, so incredible. Yeah. Fan philosopher Kate Man. Man, toxic masculinity is so out of control. <laughs> I'm just I'm just excited. Uh, as we all know, Putin is a celebrated anti-fascist, mm -hmm. and he's invading to get rid of the Nazi regime in Ukraine. And it's just exciting to see so much energy be put behind the very serious uh, anti-fascist causes. I like. Yeah, Mike Cernovich had some very kind words for uh, for for Putin's speech right before he invaded Russia. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, very exciting stuff. Yeah, all the, it does. Watching this unfold has made me think of our own national character, for lack of a better term. I don't want to speculate on what the U.S. government should do, because frankly, one of the reasons I don't think that we should focus too much of this podcast on Ukraine is because you and I are not the people who have any level of expertise you shouldn't be getting your news or right now. Leave it to Kate Mann. Yeah, leave or it to Kate Heather Hying or Met the other yeah, experts. Mike Sertovich. I mean, as much as we shit on mainstream media for various things, I still personally, I'm way more likely to trust NPR or the BBC or the New York Times or even C CNN than I am some like random fucking podcaster. Um, but this has made me think of our national, sort of consider our national character. And while I don't want to speculate on what the U.S. government should do, it is really hard for me to imagine Americans coming together like this in a way that it seems like Ukrainians have, even if we were under attack. Um, and it's also impossible to imagine our leaders like <laughs> like staying on the front lines. Not that they even could. I mean, we have like rules in place. So that, right, Joe right. Biden, I'm sticking behind in D.C. He'd have like a fucking slingshot. Um, you know, this Zelensky... 
this dude wasn't like he wasn't a military oh. hero. He wasn't. An, he didn't serve in the military. He was an actual comic who played the president on TV, and now he is emerging as this as this really miraculous figure. Assuming that what we're seeing is true, and that's the other thing about this. You know, social media couldn't even get an awkward encounter between a teenager and a Native American on the steps of the Capitol, right? So as much news that is coming out of Ukraine right now, especially for I don't Jesse, do you speak Russian or Ukrainian? Yet. There's a lot of of uplifting stories coming out of social media right now and, of course, some horror stories. And I think it's important to be really skeptical of all of them until they're confirmed by some decent reporting. Yeah. Do not Don't share, share any out of context. And, and also, it, it goes without saying that um, – this is true during any like violent conflict, like the fog of war. But like Russia is really good at manipulating social media and the internet, and and also intelligence services will jump in and try to. It's just it's so easy to become a chump while wanting to do the right thing and like share scary or uplifting news. So just like don't do it. I think it's really important to, for people to be skeptical of both good news and bad news because we really don't know what's going on. So try to avoid sharing shit that hasn't been thoroughly vetted as a rule just in all sorts of all fucking events all moments of crisis there's just there was some some photo floating around or some video floating around of what appeared to be a ukrainian guy saying goodbye to his daughter before he went out to the front lines and it turns out that it was a russian guy um so i think it's just it's <laughs> like some people had been like sharing and sharing this dude who was saying goodbye to his daughter and then it turns out he was going to fucking attack ukrainians so just it we don't know what's going on just be careful about what you share i'm trying to think i don't know if i agree with you that if the u.s got attacked we wouldn't pull together like what we've had smaller scale strategies like the um you know, a couple of horrible hate crime mass shootings, one in that church and then one in the synagogue. I feel like during those those crises are horrible. They're not as bad as like an invasion or a major terrorist attack. I think we were capable of coming together for a few days at least. I'm not talking about an, a moment of silence. I'm talking about like Russia invades the U.S. Oh. <laughs> I don't, Katie, I don't want to fight. I don't know the details. I don't want to fight. I'm running. Right. Right. Well, that's the one thing I was thinking about is like because of the like the again, I'm not going to pretend to know much about this, but part of the reason Russia holds the world over a barrel is it exports a lot of energy. And it's like I'm not necessarily confident that either the EU or America would have very much tolerance for pain like sanctions wise, like it like these sorts of sanctions or that would actually potentially do good. Although there's there's controversy over whether sanctions basically anywhere. Like, do you really think Americans would like stand for their gas going up 50 cents a gallon for five months to help the Ukrainian cause. Yeah. I mean, if uh, if the U.S. gets gets roped into this war, we'll see. Maybe there will be a coming together, but I don't know. Can you imagine people, amass numbers of like Brooklyn gamers joining up to, to enlist to go fight overseas? I mean, yeah, that that's uh, any U.S. involvement is off the table. I'm saying I don't, I'm not convinced we would even sacrifice uh, – at a much lower level. Higher gas prices. Yeah. Although easy for me to say because I, yeah. you know, uh, slightly higher gas prices wouldn't drive me out of business or, or seriously affect me. So, yeah. Well, I did enlist you in the army. So the Ukrainian army. So uh, by Jesse. I would be such a shit. I'm just thinking of like the three times I've played paintball and how bad I was. Oh, it hurts. It, it hurts. hurts. And also if you're like hiding behind a metal thing, the plink, plink, plink is very alarming. It hurts your ears. I needed some self-care after that. You know, I'll send you a bike helmet before you go. Just a final earnest thing. Uh, yeah, we're joking. This is horrible. And I think we're really lucky to live in a country where we don't have to worry about anything like this. And that's a complete historical anomaly. Like what percentage of people who have ever been alive have just had – like not really had to worry realistically about some enemy 
killing them. We Our risk of stuff like that is incredibly low, and we're lucky. We can just fucking make jokes about it. Podcast on. All right. That has that has been it. I, I think, I mean, we're always open to your feedback. We're probably mostly going to leave this to the experts. There's such blanket coverage. Today, we're going to talk about a couple things. One is this, like, pretty ghoulish new attempt on the part of the Texas government to go after parents uh, and kids who've gotten puberty blockers or hormones. It it was a giant story online that quickly became overshadowed by Ukraine, but it's pretty important because it touches on stuff we've talked a lot about and have strong opinions on that. This was your Ukraine. <laughs> how many, okay, I'm going to set back the uh, time since last joke about the horrific Ukraine invasion to zero seconds, <laughs> restarting it. Okay, go. Uh, but first, you had a something a little bit uh, lighter. Yes, Jesse, this one is going to start with a tweet. This is a an account who go, that goes by either Live in Cassandra or Live in Cassandra. Not sure about that. She says, Tragically, our DSA chapter no longer exists as we voted to divide it into five ethnically segregated entities so as to better fight racism. <laughs> this is like the Yuga, Yugoslavia yeah. war. <laughs> is this a joke or is this real? What do you think? Based on what little I know about the least functional corners of the Democratic Socialists of America DSA, I bet it's real. So that is what we are going to resolve today. And I will admit, based on my own superficial knowledge of the DSA or the Democratic Socialists of America, my first assumption is that this is this is real. Someone, some DSA chapter really did split into five ethnically segregated entities. Um, and the reason is because there have been some very awkward attempts to fight racism within some chapters of the DSA. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, here's a little bit of background on the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, the DSA was founded in 1982, and it was basically a successor to uh, labor and anti-war movements. It's not technically a political party. And while the DSA has occasionally run people for office, like like AOC is in the DSA, they've also endorsed Democratic candidates, including some neo-libs like John Kerry and Barack Obama. So the DSA has essentially been a fringe political movement with some prominent members, but mostly made up of aging hippies. And that was true until from its from its uh, inception in the early 80s until 2016 when Bernie Sanders ran for president. So in 2013, for instance, the median age of a DSA member, why don't you, why don't you guess it? In, in 2013? Yeah. 52. 68. Jesus. And in 2017, it was 33. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And they're about they're now about 100,000 members in the US and uh Bernie has historically been sort of a class guy. This, <laughs> most people probably know that. When he he was involved in the civil rights movement, but his focus has really been on class and he seems to believe that by lifting up all, lifting up poor people, that will benefit black people and other minority nope. groups. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's racist. He class racist. reductionist. Exactly. So he's he's accused by some of being a class reductionist, but he's still very popular within the DSA. So he was sort of the the patron saint. He's been sort of the patron saint of the DSA. But this is this this pers- or this focus on class first is at odds with many of the younger members who, especially in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, have really emphasized race over class when it comes to policy. So if you go to the DSA website and, and look up its actual political platform, the second paragraph is all about their commitment to anti-racism. The third paragraph is about the subjugation of women and non-binary people, because obviously the subjugation of a population that was invented in Tumblr in 2013 is very important. (laughs) 
you're just you're just like asking for I don't, I don't think non but there were like third genders for a long time not non-binary and exactly that. where in other countries other countries i mean okay I don't like know. what okay tell me what other countries uh american samoa there's a hijira in india okay so you think the dsa has had a big presence uh working with subject subjugation of people in american samoa neither neither of us is gonna check this so i'm just saying yeah did I, I think I, did i say american samoa i think just samoa just samoa Okay, so yeah, American Samoa. Actually, they might have something to say about the occupation of American Samoa. But but this idea, whatever, we don't need to get into it. But the point is, there has been this shift from class first to race and identity first within the DSA. And now they call for things like police abolition and the freeing of prisoners, which are not actually really working class values. Do you think that's true? Do you think like working class people are all about police abolition and closing on prisons and freeing prisoners and replacing them with, quote, investments in community self-governance and care? Do you think those are working class values? For the most part, if you control for partisanship, no. Those sorts of beliefs are more likely to be held by wealthier people than less wealthy people. Which also, in some instances, happen to be members of DSA, not in terms of wealth, but in terms of education. The DSA today tends to be hyper-educated yeah. liberals. And this is, I mean, this is like the perpetual war on the left. Um, not just like race versus class, but sort of how much we should care about quote unquote symbolic issues, how much we should do meat on the potatoes or organ, meat on the potatoes, meat on the potatoes <laughs> organizing. I like you, potatoes on the meat better. You just have a raw potato and speckle <laughs> it with meat. Uh, yeah. So these are long running fights on the left. Bacon bits issues. Yeah. Okay, so this has led to this this issue, class versus identity, has led to a lot of tension within some DSA chapters. There's now a class unity caucus within the DSA, and that's sort of like the anti-woke DSA. If you go to their their website right on the main page, they basically call out identity politics socialist. The main page says... We believe the only way to win socialism is through mass working class politics. Unfortunately, the DSA is far from a mass workers party. Our membership is dominated by the professional managerial stratum, stratum, academics, and college-educated millennials. In too many chapters, this skewed class composition has hardened into an impenetrable middle-class subculture that reproduces the pathology and dysfunction of campus activism. The result is is an aesthetically radical liberal politics masquerading as socialism, where moralism replaces materialism, prefigurative politics displaces serious organizing, and an insular scene politics displaces class solidarity. Yeah. I mean, I'm not so, yeah, that's, it's, I th- think that's a pretty well, I'm not socialist person, but I think that's a pretty well uh, put description of the divide. Yeah. And they go on to say that the DSA priorities are out of step with the working class. And instead of focusing on things like abolishing police or freeing prisoners or doing pronoun circle jerks, uh, they need to focus on like old school Marxist principles, things like medical Medicare for all, higher wages, better working conditions. Um, okay, so we're gonna get into a little uh, into some examples that really show this tension. So in 2020, the Seattle DSA debated a resolution uh, to use its funds to pay reparations to Black members of the DSA. And there were no strings attached. So if you were, say, a black worker for Amazon and had been to one DSA meeting in your entire life, you would get reparations payments. But if you were a Mexican-American immigrant working at a restaurant and had and had gone to every every fucking meeting, you wouldn't get these cash payments. And in fact, you would be paying these cash payments. And this was very divisive within the Seattle DSA. But a few, but only a few people vocally opposed it because, and this is according to a witness who was there who opposed it, 
anyone who spoke out about this resolution was accused of being a racist. Uh, This is from our DSA correspondent. He wrote us in an email, these people, and by these people, he means the identity first people, are coming, constantly coming from an identity politics perspective and not a Marxist one. There was no analysis of class in their argumentation. Everything was just based off race. And if it was a different discussion, it would have been either gender or sexuality. They just seemed like a bunch of liberals who decided that socialism was a means to an end, that of racial equality. And they were less concerned about the idea of reaching the utopian society that socialists have always dreamed of. I want to be a part of the socialist tradition, one with a rich, diverse history of fighting racial oppression and bettering the lives of all members of the working class, white or POC. I don't want to be in a group of woke liberals whose style is thinking they're better than everyone else because of their extreme opinions on race, gender, and sexuality. That's not what I signed up for. Uh, The resolution passed by nearly 70%. And so this was in 2020, and I checked in with him recently. Um, 33% of the Seattle DSA budget now goes to um, pay reparations to the small number of black people within the DSA. That's 33%? Holy shit, man. So another example comes to us from Atlanta. This is in June 2020. Uh, Do you remember the story of Rayshard Brooks? He was the black man who was killed by police after passing out uh, in a Wendy's drive-thru. And then he resisted arrest, fled from police, took a cop's taser, um, and was shot and killed. Yeah. After Rayshard Brooks was killed... Uh, some black activist groups took over the area around the Wendy's. They renamed it the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center. And then on July 4th of that year, there was a shooting within that within that area that killed an eight-year-old girl. And there had been armed guards at the area, but apparently there was some kind of conflict and somebody shot into a car and this child was killed. So a few weeks after that, a woman, a woman of color, I don't know what race she is, but she's apparently non-white, uh, in the DSA leadership the Atlanta DSA leadership um, basically told DSA members that they hadn't been present enough at this location and they needed to start volunteering with the group that was running it. And then, and this, all of this comes from uh, from Slack chats that were that were leaked onto Reddit. Another DSA member who was a white guy said basically, like, "What's the goal of this organization or of these demonstrations at the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center?" Uh, and then he said, "This is a quote." Most of what I've heard from them involves randos with guns shooting and killing, which is something I personally want to stay from, stay away from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how well do you think that went over, Jesse? Uh, not well. So the woman uh, in leadership who had who had asked people to go to the center and volunteer, she responds. This is also on Slack. She says, "Okay, I'm going to assume good faith in your questions, but I'm also exhausted in explaining white privilege and entitlement. So cut me some slack if this response comes off as harsh. I understand members asking questions before committing to an action, but asking by BIPOC organizers to cater to white comfort when planning actions is highly problematic. And then she goes on for a little while and concludes with this. As others have stated, when you have a group that does not trust police to keep them safe and have not have, and have been on the receiving end of violence, showing up with guns can be a form of community safety. Can get, things go wrong? Absolutely. But things can also go wrong if protesters did not have did not have guns. E.g., the police at these protests can shoot someone. A white supremacist with a gun should, can shoot someone. I would urge you to examine what it is about this specific group of people having guns that bothers you. So th- there's a child was killed at this place. There are armed people all around this place. Someone asked, like, what is going on here? 
and he's asked to inspect his inspect his prejudice. He responds to this with a poop emoji. <laughs> he's then accused of harassing this woman of color, and other members start talking about expelling him for the for the poop the harassing poop emoji because he dis- disrespected this woman. And he announces that they can't expel him because he's quitting. And then the woman who the woman of color who was in leadership who started all of this by asking people to go volunteer at this site around the Wendy's where a kid was murdered and announces that she's leaving too so that's insane so basically this conversation leads to two people including someone in leadership leaving this organization okay next we're going to move on to baltimore uh jesse if you go to baltimoredsa.org the first thing that pops up is this slogan building working class political and economic power to end capitalism and white supremacy for a socialist future in greater Baltimore. So it's right there on the homepage. This is an anti-racist organization, not just a socialist one. Now I'm going to read you uh, a document, part of a document called the Declaration of Intent from Greater Baltimore Afro-Socialist and Socialist Color Caucus. This was released a couple months ago. We, as a majority white organization in a predominantly black city, our chapter must acknowledge that working toward any goal, regardless of how benevolent it is in intention, is at best an act of colonization and makes the greater Baltimore Democratic Socialist of America an unintentional occupational institution of white supremacy. Wait, so the the DSA in Baltimore, because it's white-led, is now like a local colonial power? Or an external colonial power occupying part of Baltimore by existing. And working toward any goal, regardless of how benevolent it is, is at best an act of colonization. If working towards any goal is an act of colonization, it seems like maybe you just want to disband at that point. I think the problem is a lot – and this is – there is a long history of this in leftist movements. There's just certain lacks of guardrails where like – Bullies and sociopaths can take the reins and there's nothing anyone can do about it. Yeah. The caucus, so it goes on to list various demands, uh, including making dues optional for members of color, setting aside 51% of all dues for the Afro-Socialist Caucus and other black-led mutual aid organizations, and then making people of color votes worth more than white votes. And they have this like complicated mathematical formula to determine exactly how many more votes people of color should get than white people. Five, five thirds. <laughs> only fair, only fair. And then so, okay, so a, a, a union, a white union organizer and DSA member named Ryan uh Kirkus, he objected to handing over most of the DSA's money to these outside groups. Here's what he tweeted. According to that meeting, this, and the, so they must have just had a meeting about this. This is approximately five months of Baltimore DSA dues we'd be giving to an insane third party with a GeoCities-ass website. And then he links to the Ujima People's Progress Party in a screenshot of their organization. Um, and then so he he deleted this tweet. Here, actually, Jesse, why don't you look at this this website and tell me, do you think this is GeoCities-ass? Yes, I can confirm this is GeoCities. I mean, it's not quite GeoCities-ass. It's Because it's not blue. It's a yellow background. It's like red text on a yellow background. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know anything about the local politics, but it sounds like he he's just like, who who are these people? Why are we giving them money? Which is probably a fair complaint. Yes, uh, he was accused of racism for this. Wait, accused of racism for saying they had an outdated website? Yeah, here, let me read you this statement from uh, the Greater Baltimore DSA. The Greater Baltimore Democratic Socialist America condemns the racist and disparaging social media posts by an individual member regarding our partner, partner organization, Ujima People's Progress Party. 
And then next paragraph, this incident shows how pernicious white supremacy can be, even in leftist spaces. These social media posts contribute to a history of racist paternalism directed towards black people, organizations, culture, and political thought that whitewashes a rich black socialist tradition. As a predominantly white organization in a majority black city, Greater Baltimore DSA must confront white supremacy and its relationship to capitalist exploitation, both within and outside the organization. And again, this is because he said, the quote is, this is approximately five months of Baltimore DSA dues we'd be giving over to an insane third party with a GeoCities ass website. So I think it's those two words, insane and GeoCities ass, I guess three words, uh, that made this racist. Oh, and he also used the yellow thumbs up emoji, and we know from NPR that that's racist. Yellow thumbs up emojis racist. Got it. All of this brings us back to that first tweet by Live in Cassandra or Live in Cassandra. Tragically, our DSA chapter no longer exists as we voted to divide it into five ethnically segregated entities so as to better fight racism. <laughs> I am now confident in declaring that this was actually a joke and a pretty good one. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> it, it like it would not have shocked me based on what I've heard about the DSA. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the thing that strikes me about all of this is that this seems like a classic example of mission creep where an organization's goals and values gradually shift so much that at some point they're unrecognizable from the initial goals of the organization. And in some cases, the later organization actually ends up working against the goals of the earlier organization. And we've seen this in things like the ACLU, some gay rights that pivoted to trans, pivoted to basically becoming trans rights groups, and then also in some women's groups that uh, have uh, now avoid using terms like women and female because they aren't considered inclusive enough. I think this is a, a like pretty natural trajectory, um, and clearly this is causing lots of tension. And there are groups like the Class Unity Caucus trying to prevent this. But yes, the DSA does no longer seem to uh, stand for the working man, if it ever did, really. Yeah. Well. I don't know. I think I think there's probably local groups doing good work and on real issues. There's like it's a pretty fractured group. Like all these local chapters um, are run, I think, autonomously, basically or semi-autonomously. Then there's the national one, which has generated some embarrassment. But yeah, I mean, I, I think there are obviously pretty deranged chapters that are just unfortunately letting crazy people control them and control the funding, which is. So self-defeating, but I, I don't know. I'm still overall like I like the idea of there being a group like the DSA that tries to do like grassroots economic justice work. I just think they're so easily hijacked these days. Yeah, I don't know how much uh, how much the DSA can claim to have made like real material gains. I I do think they've definitely pushed things like the fifteen dollar minimum wage, which is becoming more of a reality around the country. And Bernie Sanders has certainly shifted politics to the left. But you know, if they are focusing on things like racial justice instead of minimum wage, housing, Medicare for all, things like that, they're probably, those things will get left uh, left behind as they as they shift focus to things like race. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on what, when you say focus on racial justice, is it dumb bullshit? Like saying, we're going to give a lot of our money to this other random group without vetting them. Or it, it, like if, if the racial justice conversation involved things like raising the minimum wage, this is, this has been the point forever. Those policies yeah. disproportionately impact uh, certain minority groups. So yeah, it's... Yeah. I think that organizations um, in general are sort of better off oftentimes with a narrower focus. Oh yeah. I mean, this has been a, the, the mission creep problem has has been real. Mm-hmm. Anything else on DSA, Katie? Nope. That's it. If you're a member of a DSA with good stories for us, my DMs are open. All right. You can always reach us at blockchainreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a subreddit, Reddit, 
dot you're gonna have to check no, that <laughs> blocked and reported blocked and reported dot reddit dot com we uh if you go to blocked and reported dot org you can also become a premium member uh primo although i think we're shifting toward preemie for that nickname preemies has a better ring to yeah, it preemie has really positive connotations if you become one of our preemies you will get uh three extra premium episodes a month uh the the last one we published was an ama that we had a pretty good response to i think there was some um fun stuff in there a lot of comments on the website you also get access to weekly locked comment threads uh, you get to be part of like a, a big community. I think we're up around 6,500 people, uh, which is uh, an, a veritable army that we're going to eventually dispatch around the world to, to solve geopolitical crises. The Reply Guy Army. The Reply Guy Army. Uh, oh, merch. If you go to blockchainreported.org, you can also find merch and buy um, surface-to-air missiles branded with blockchain reported and stuff. Yeah, please send them to Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. we can't control which but side you send them don't tell from. Putin where they, where they came Do from. Do not tweet about it on social media. No. Uh, don't post pictures either. <laughs> anything else? Join us, blockchainreported.org. Join us. Okay, as part of a pretty whiplash-inducing episode, this is a really depressing story, and uh, I'm going to try to – it's complicated, and there's a lot of my – my it's complicated catchphrase <laughs> is going to get a workout here. Start drinking, folks. It's complicated. Yeah, start drinking. Drink every time I say it's complicated. Okay, so this all starts with Ken Paxton. He is the attorney general of Texas. Like many attorney generals, he brings a, a pretty politicized persona to his job. Uh, what sets him apart as an attorney general is that he has, since 2015, been fighting securities fraud charges. He was indicted on them in 2015. Uh, Paxton is accused of duping people in a McKinney, Texas-based investment scheme. He was indicted and released on bond, and thanks to a range of delays, the case has yet to face trial, noted Texas Standard last July. He's also facing an FBI investigation involving accusations of bribes and political favors, and more recently, he's been accused that of uh, lying about the whistleblowers who brought this stuff to light. This sounds like exactly... Exactly the sort of character you want in an attorney general position. Absolutely. Just a law-abiding, by-the-book, boring mm-hmm. bureaucrat type. Mm-hmm. So in part because of these legal challenges, Paxton is facing uh, a tough challenge for re-election. There's a number of Republican challengers trying to take this job from him. Uh, one of them is Representative Louis Gohmert, who's a name some of you might recognize. Another is the land commissioner of the great state of Texas, one George P. Bush. There's a factory in Kennebunkport that just churns out <laughs> so many George Bushes with different middle names. There's just way too many of them. Who is this one in relation to the other George Bushes? I did not care enough to check. And I, I'm brave enough to Let's be honest about that. He is nephew. George P. Bush is the great, great grandchild of George W. Bush. Let's just say that. Okay. I think he's the lover of George H. W.C. Bush. Mm-hmm. They're married. Yeah, they're married. <laughs> uh, just despite the uh, the Texas thing. So corruption is a centerpiece of this campaign, and he's Paxton is fighting for his political life in a way he probably didn't anticipate. The primary, the Republican primary for the AG spot is March 1st, and he has to avoid a runoff. That's his goal. He has to get more than 50% of the vote. At the moment, according to Texas polling, he's like mired in the low 40s. Whoever wins the primary will face off against a set of emboldened Democrats who are trying to seize the uh, Texas State Attorney General's office from those dastardly Republicans. Okay, so I will leave it to everyone's imagination whether all the stuff I'm about to say should be seen as connected to the fact that Ken Paxton is fighting for his political life in Texas and whether it should be connected to a document he wrote. 
The document in question, it's a uh, an opinion from the Texas AG's office. Here's how that office explains what these documents are. An attorney general opinion is a written interpretation of existing law. Attorney general opinions cannot create new provisions in the law or correct unintended, undesirable effects of the law. Dot, dot, dot. Further, attorney general opinions cannot resolve factual disputes. So, a letter he just wrote, one of these AG opinions, burst onto the scene last week thanks to a mega viral tweet storm by the account at Aaron in the morn. Um, Katie, I take it you saw this tweet storm? Yes. Let me just read part of this tweet storm from at Aaron in the morn. It's depressing. Greg Abbott has officially directed Family and Protective Services to begin investigating all trans children in Texas and prosecuting their parents as child abusers. He has also instructed all teachers, doctors, and caregivers to begin reporting any trans students they see. If you have a duty to report in Texas, Texas is officially saying that you have to report trans youth to Family and Protective Services or risk losing your job. Katie, are you familiar with like that, the duty to report mandated reporter thing? Yeah. uh, So for instance, if you go to a therapist and you say like, my father is beating me or something like that, the therapist is is mandated to report this or a school counselor was mandated to report it to, I don't know if the police, but some other authority figures. Yeah. Or like if a teacher sees suspicious marks on a kid, she might have to report it to Child Protective Services. Um, I'm just going to keep reading from the sweet storm. If you are the parent of a trans kid in Texas, now is the time to get out. We will help you in any way we can. Please reach out to me and I'll make sure to signal boost your GFMs, GoFundMes. And who is this person who tweeted this? I don't know. I think she's just some activist, but this was like mega viral. It might be, I'd have to check. Um, It was in tens of thousands of retweets when I saw it. Like everybody saw this. Okay. And so I've learned by now that if something goes viral, it's probably not true. So what's true about this and what's false? Well, let me just read the rest and and we're going to get deep into this. Um, because I, I think the stuff she's saying is important. It's important to pick apart what, what's real and what is it. If you are in Texas, the safest nearby state to go to is likely to be Colorado and New Mexico. If you are a parent with a trans kid and are looking to escape these issues from ever popping up again in your life, any state in dark green is best. And she posts this map that, that sort of comes across as like something you would send to someone trying to flee an imminently dangerous situation. Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, not to make light of that because we would never do that, but it, it sort of mm-hmm. has that vibe to it. And then – um. Let me just read a little bit more. When we say that there is a trans genocide going on, this is what we're talking about. It's been slowly bubbling and percolating to the surface. And in the enclaves of anti-trans governments, they are deciding now is their time to act. Um, I- I'll leave it at that, except to say this part this sparked a lot of... Wait, can we... So I actually have a question about this. That's what people yeah. mean by trans genocide? Because when I hear the term genocide, I think of murder. Yeah, um, me too. I-, I guess if this was... It's like ethnic cleansing or something if you're... Right, like a redefinition of terms here. Yeah. Um, yes, but... We don't really mean murder. We mean bad some policy. Some other thing. Well, yeah. And then, yeah. I mean, she's saying you should flee the state if you want to keep your kids. And we'll get we'll get to how that's, that's not an entirely... It's complicated. Take a shot. So th- this sparked <laughs> a huge response online. A lot of like Twitter takes, including this one from Max Kennerly. He's a trial lawyer with 81,000 followers. It is now the official policy of Texas that adults are required to assess the genitals of every child they interact with and to report what they observe to the government so it can send agents out to forcibly inspect children's genitals and remove the children from their homes. Okay, where did that come from? That doesn't make he's, any sense. He's, he's making that up. He's absolutely it, – it's just – He's a lawyer? Yeah, this is this Lawyer, thing Lawyers where, make shit up? He should be attorney general of Texas. I just – I it. 
this is a point we've made before that people don't like to hear, but like during moments when like shit is going wrong, if you exaggerate what's going on wrong or simplify oversimplify it or like spread fears that are beyond the fears people should fear, you're you're committing a bad act. That's not like an act of allyship to be like, yep. Yep, they're going to come and they're going to inspect your kid's dick. And that's that's not what this is. We'll get to what it is. But I, I'm not going to depress myself further by like reading all these tweets. And the thing itself is very depressing. Okay, so Katie, you remember we talked about how there was this big surge of conservative state laws attempting to ban um, puberty blockers and hormones, right? Yes. So in Texas, this came in the form of something called Senate Bill 1646. That effort failed. It couldn't clear the state legislature, so uh, it couldn't become law in Texas. Paxton's letter is an attempt as attorney general to carve out a way for Texas to ban these procedures without passing any new laws. It's an attempt to say that, oh, it turns out that these procedures, which we couldn't summon enough support to ban in law, they're already banned under pre-existing Texas law. This is why people call Republicans the party of small government. Yeah, exactly. The party of small government. Just work around the procedures. It turns out, it turns out there's already a law for that. Oh, great. So- if you read the document, which I did, this this involves a really strained and creative reading, not only of of these laws, but like of sort of of what they're for. So Paxton's basically trying to take laws that are already on the books against child abuse and forced sterilization and to apply them to puberty blockers and hormones. So there's a lot of, of material in his document that sounds like something a progressive might write, such as when he mentions the historical forced sterilization of, quote, African-Americans, female minors, the disabled, and others. Of course, in those cases, the point was to, like, sterilize an African-American so they can't have kids or disabled persons so they can't sully the gene pool. In this case, what we're talking about is... If you go on blockers early enough and then you go on cross-sex hormones, you won't be able to have kids because you won't have developed sexually enough to have kids. That is true. But I think even someone who is skeptical of youth gender medicine, that's very different. That is a side effect of medicine you're taking for another reason versus intentionally sterilizing someone just to sterilize them. Yes? Yes. And it would presumably – this is presumably something that kids want, that it's it's that kids are consenting to this procedure. Yes. And and that one of the weak points of the arguments for youth gender medicine that Paxton pounces on is consent gets complicated. When you're talking about 13 and 14 and 15 year olds and things like sex and, and pregnancy and development, it, it's tricky. And in the best cases, there will be multiple adults who have they, they can't consent legally, so it has to be their parents. It has to be doctors. Well, I mean, there are some states that don't require parental consent. It's 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 complicated. Your okay, thoughts. I'm gonna read you. I'm gonna read you this from. This is a piece that Abigail Schreier wrote about a parent who uh, left Washington State. His name was Ahmed um, because his kid, who was autistic, wanted to transition and uh, transition to female, and Ahmed didn't want this to happen, so he left Washington State. And Trier writes, was Ahmed's reaction extreme? When I first heard it back in October 2020, I wondered whether he hadn't overreacted. But as a growing number of parents began contacting me with similar stories, I delved into the state laws of Washington, Oregon, and California. I came to a different conclusion. Taken individually, no single law in any state completely strips parents' rights over their care and mental health treatment of their troubled minor teens. But pieced together, 
Laws in California, Oregon, and Washington place troubled minor teens as young as 13 in the driver's seat when it comes to their own mental health care, including gender-affirming care, and renders parents powerless to stop it. And we have seen, like, there was a guy, and Abigail Schreier wrote about this as well, there was a guy in, I believe, California who lost custody of his of his child because he objected to the child transitioning and the mother didn't. Yeah, there are those ugly cases where, where two parents disagree, but... Uh, in most states, including Texas, it does require. I'm sure Texas, yes, like I'm sure. High age. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I actually did not. I knew Oregon had a pretty crazy low age of medical consent for some certain procedures. Uh, California and, yeah, Washington. I should say, like, I always get a little bit, like, I don't always think the answer is obvious just because you think of the of abortion as, like, another thing people have very strong mm-hmm. feelings about. And I'm not willing to say so, like a 14-year-old, I don't think it's good when a 14-year-old has to get an abortion. I'm also not willing to say their parents should not be able to block that. Should be able to prevent it, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's complicated. Everyone's going to be really drunk by the end of this. Okay, so um, throughout this document, Paxton also like in this sloppy way that I think is characteristic of a lot of progressive coverage of this of this issue and of the evidence, he switches between like the very different questions of top and bottom surgery Um and trans healthcare for kids versus adults. So, like, at one point, he'll say, like, there's not evidence for this, and then he'll quote a Medicare document look from 2016 looking at the evidence for adults who have surgery, uh, which includes – and that document's, like, largely referring to bottom surgery, which kids – so people will often say kids don't get top surgery below the age of 16 or 18, which is – just false. There's a fair number of providers who will do that, although it varies state to state. Kids really don't get bottom surgery, except in very rare instances uh, below 18. There's a few counterexamples. So I didn't get the sense that Paxton was like fully informed on sort of what happens when and what what the issues are. Um, they Paxton also mentions Munchausen by proxy syndrome, which is this this disease where parents, I think it's usually moms, come to believe their kid has an illness and then gives them medicine for it, sometimes harming or killing them because they don't have the illness. It I don't understand why he brings this up in the document. I think he's suggesting parents of trans kids have this, but he's not like citing any specific case or any evidence this is the case. It just seems like he wants to throw up a cloud of suspicion on parents who want to get these treatments for their kids. What this document comes down to is Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, uh, in a cover letter writes that Texas law imposes reporting requirements upon all licensed professionals who may have direct contact with children who may be subject to such abuse, including doctors, nurses, and teachers, and provides criminal penalties for failure to report such child abuse. So Abbott's letter, he's sending a letter to basically Texas's equivalent of child protective services saying, yes, we need to start investigating parents and doctors who give these treatments to kids. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and say that's bad. Yeah, it, it's it's horrible. And, and the... I mean, even if you object to, as I mostly do, object to youth transition, this is still bad. Think about it this way. There... Obviously, there are cases where kids are rushed on hormones or blockers, and I'm against that. And I think the evidence for hormones and blockers is significantly weaker than you would think if you're like a CNN viewer or a Times reader or if you've you've unfortunately followed – like on the – I think there's been – progressive outlets have done a horrible job covering this issue. I, I really do. I've said that at length. But imagine a situation where a kid goes through this process – and their doctor thinks they should go on blockers. Their endocrinologist thinks they should go on blockers. Their parent thinks they should go on blockers. They think they should go on blockers. They do it. 
and the state comes and takes that kid out of their parents' home, that that's that's like tyranny. Conservatives throw the word tyranny around a lot. That is an example of tyranny. And and puts puts them in where foster care. I mean, putting taking kids away. That's the part of this. I have major objections to youth transition because of because as you said, the evidence isn't that it actually benefits things like mental health isn't great. And the repercussions, the side effects are very serious, including maybe never being able to orgasm in your life, much less have children. But taking someone's child and putting that child in foster care, and once you've entered into the foster care system, it is really, really difficult to get out of that system. No kid should have should be put in that position. That is incredibly fucked up. So even if you even if you don't think that it should be legal for children to receive this this treatment, the idea that a child would be taken out of their out of a loving home for this. It's fucked up. Greg Abbott is trying to deputize a vast swath of Texans to inform on any kid they think might be on blockers or hormones with the goal of potentially having them removed from their homes and having their parents or doctors thrown in jail. In many cases for doing for undergoing medical procedures or performing medical procedures that like every major medical body, maybe you think they shouldn't be in favor of them, but they are in favor of them. That's what their guidelines say. You can't have a situation where a state is swooping in and removing kids from their homes for undergoing medical treatments the medical establishment likes. And so what's the legality here? Is this all actually enforceable? I cannot imagine this would hold up in court. That's sort of the only partial silver lining here. Like it's it's really unclear at this point what practical impact this will have. Nineteenth um, News is an independent outlet focused on on sort of sex and gender stuff. They quoted uh, Adri Perez, um, who's from the the Texas ACLU, I believe. Uh, Adri Perez and other LGBTQ plus advocates are doubtful the opinion can withstand a legal challenge. The New York Times wrote, "It is still unclear how and whether the orders, which do not change Texas law, would be enforced." While the state's child welfare agency has said it will investigate such claims, some county and district attorneys have stated they will not enforce the opinion. Let me just read one excerpt because I I think it's important to be as specific as possible here. And I did not dive deeply into the legality of this because that's a whole other can of worms and I'm going to leave it to the times here. Marissa Gonzalez, a spokesman for the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, said that there were no pending investigations of child abuse involving the procedures described, but that the agency would investigate cases that were reported. Whether children can be taken from their parents for allowing them to receive such medical care will ultimately be at the discretion of the courts. Quote, at this moment, it's unclear what child protective services prosecutors and judges are going to do with this non-binding opinion from the attorney general, end quote. Kate Murphy, senior policy associate for child protection at Texans Care for Children, a nonprofit children's policy group, said in an email statement, quote, what is clear is that politicians should not be tearing apart loving families and sending their kids into the foster care system when parents provide recommended medical care that they believe is in the best interest of their child, end quote. If local attorneys do not pursue cases, the state attorney general's office could do it, Mr. Menifee, the Harris County attorney, said, adding that the position taken by the governor and the attorney general could have a chilling effect. Quote, it's designed to make parents scared, end quote, he said. It's designed to make doctors scared for even facilitating gender-affirming health care, end quote. So I think that's what it is. Texas could not pass a bill outlawing these procedures. These procedures are very popular and well-regarded, I think, too much so in light of the evidence, by the medical establishment. So Texas is trying to uh, put kids in foster care and potentially ruin their lives and their parents' lives for making medical decisions that the state of Texas disagrees with. 
I mean, I'm sure you're you're right about that. I also think that this probably has a lot to do with political posturing, the fact that this dude is embroiled in his own scandals, and also the fact that even if this isn't happening in Texas, it is happening in other places where there was some email that leaked recently about a, a, a teacher telling other teachers, Elliot now goes by Ellie or something like that. Don't tell the parents. So this is happening in other places. And I think this is a reaction, an overreaction to very real trends that are happening in mostly blue states and cities. I mean, it's fucking bad. It's bad either way. But this is not, I don't think it comes out of nowhere. It comes out of like watching the news and seeing that it is true in places like I just looked up. So this is from Seattle Children's Hospital. Complete parental consent is not required for medications used to suppress menstrual cycles in transgender boys or for some testosterone blockers in transgender girls. So it is true that in some places, a child can go into go to a Jenner clinic and leave with medication and the parents, not even with parental consent, but the parents might not even know about it. And I think that's really bad too. Well, sure, but that, that's not really what this law is about. Like I no, but I'm saying that I'm saying that this is this is the two sides do feed yes, off each yes. other, but th- this is like trying to punish yes. parents for giving their kids these. Yeah, it's an overreaction to something that is happening in other places. It's saying the liberals have gone too far. California, Washington, Oregon, maybe Austin, Texas has gone too far. So we're going to go too far in the other direction. This is the whole fucking problem with the culture war is extremes on both sides. Yeah, I just I'm I'm I don't want to. I'm happy both sides saying things because a lot of people are crazy, but like this is such an escalation yeah. when you're you're deputizing the state, uh, the biggest, like a giant state, not the biggest, California's the biggest, but think of like how many people are now at risk of having their kids taken care of and, and just sort of the fog of suspicion and paranoia that will descend on everybody. Well, I don't know how much of a real risk it is because we don't know if this is enforceable or it'll hold. But that's the right. thing, but that's, but that's the thing. Like you don't, you don't know. And they, they have said, we are going to try to press these cases. Now I do think telling people to flee Texas immediately and trying to start some panic stampede is not helpful, partly because- as soon as Texas tries to pull this shit, can you imagine the response and the millions of dollars of legal aid oh, that yeah. will flee toward the victim of this attempt at tyranny? Well, and the number of corporations that will leave Texas immediately, which is exactly what happened with HB2 in North Carolina, the bathroom bill. The bathroom bill in North Carolina wasn't unpopular because North Carolina is full of people who support the rights of transgender people to use the bathroom of their choice. The bathroom bill was unpopular because all of these corporations said, we're going to take our business out of this state. It was basically sanctions. And so this was going to affect everybody. And the same thing would happen in Texas. Yeah. So so I think I really think this is a tyrannical move. I don't use that term lightly. I don't like exaggerating. I, I think hyper-exaggeration is just a big problem in American political discourse now. But it, it, it's tyranny for the state to say, we're going to investigate you and take your kid away because you gave the medicine their doctor said they needed. You need to completely mm-hmm. set aside the evidentiary questions and all that. They're, they're, they're separate debates. And it is annoying. People are now trying to say, well, you can't, you can't talk about the evidence behind these uh, treatments because look what Texas is doing. You know what? There's always going to be a Texas. There's always going to be shitty right-wing legislators overreacting. That doesn't mean there's not a debate there. There's a debate there. I'm sorry. There is. Uh, speaking of which, so Sweden just passed new guidelines that seem pretty reasonable to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? I haven't looked into them enough to know, like – to comment on the reasonableness. But what did happen is I think this was one day before uh, Twitter caught wind of the Texas thing is Sweden. Yeah. They basically announced that outside of experimental settings, they're seriously restricting the use of puberty blockers and hormones for, for youth. And this is partly because there was a major scandal there. Uh, I interviewed for my newsletter, 
the journalist who helped break this, where Karolinska Hospital had all these cases of really bad side effects from puberty blockers, including suicidality, including a kid who was, I think, 12 or 13 who, I don't know if he had uh, osteoporosis per se or sort of something close to osteoporosis, but major spinal issues at 12 or 13 and and other side effects that they covered up until this uh, the national broadcaster has this documentary show and they covered it. So Sweden and Finland, and to a lesser extent the UK, have all sort of moved in the direction of becoming more restricting uh, in the in their administration of these treatments. And they're all basically saying like, look, we, we don't have a good evidence base for these treatments. And at a time of more and more kids seeking gender care, we just want to be really careful. And in the States, you now have this really bad dynamic where you have – it's thoroughly bifurcated, where liberals are, it seems like, endlessly exaggerating more and more. Like, oh, no, they're great. Puberty blockers are reversible. The evidence is good. None of that's true. And if you don't take them, you're going to – You're going to kill yourself. Gonna kill that's that's yeah. the fucking worst thing you can do is spread the idea that trans kids who have to wait a little to transition, even if it's a couple of years, are going to kill themselves. Because A, that's how so- social contagion spreads. Suicide contagion is a real thing, according to people who study suicide. B, these studies that appear to show a link between um, like early quick access to puberty blockers and suicide, they, they, they're really weak. And in some cases, they just don't show that. There's also one – I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this, but one of Jack Turbin's recent studies showed that the people who went on hormones had a higher risk of of serious suicidal ideation uh, involving hospitalization than those who didn't. So, like, the, the evidence does not point in one direction. And I think there's this attempt to use sort of shock doctrine this and use horrible events like this Texas memo or right-wing laws in other states to stifle discussion of this. But we can't do that. We have to be able to talk about the science openly and honestly and accurately. And I'm not going to not do that just because something horrible happened in Texas. But something horrible did happen in Texas, and this is not the way to address this. Uh, so do you want to talk a little bit about what happened when you tweeted about this? This was I have not seen you piled on since. I mean, whenever there's a subset of online obsessives um, – Whenever something bad happens in terms of trans rights, it happened because in 2018 I wrote an Atlantic article that interviewed detransitioners, an article that also – Why is it always your article and never my article? It's, re- it's really sexist. I know. I don't get it. And your articles was the one that caused it. You met with Greg Abbott and you advised him. And you're more anti-youth transition than I am. And my article came out a year before yours. This is erasure. I was uh, – one friend DM'd me that I was trending. Uh, Jesse Single was trending uh, at least briefly. It, it's really deranged and it's been escalating a little bit because this time there were a bunch of people trying to get to me to kill myself, uh, which was not something I'd seen before. There was like this big note of, of weird – on weird Twitter, this 50,000 follower guy named Lowen Afchen. Um, I, I So the narrative – was like, oh, so you're the victim now? That was in response to me just saying, like, it's not good to send people notes telling them to kill themselves because you don't know what psychological state someone's in. And if you're telling them to kill themselves, they're probably already getting a lot of other people piling on them. And there have been cases, not me, I was not suicidal, not close to it, but there have been cases of people killing themselves or being hospitalized because of that sort of online pylon. Um, but but watching this, like, weird Twitter fucker, low enough chain or whatever – Someone who like actually has sway laugh this off and just try to encourage people to further tell me to kill myself. I found so dark in a way I hadn't experienced before. Um, 
you know, despite having written about this issue and dealt with a fair amount of bullshit for it. But I'm always, I'm torn because like it, none of this stuff is as bad as what Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton did. It's just in the moment, it's hard not to respond to it. And I should have just logged off. Yeah. I mean, this was a massive, massive dogpile. Uh, I haven't seen a dogpile like this since um, Russia invaded Ukraine. Nice. Um, and, you know, I think, yes, I think that your tactic of responding to these people, it's never going to work. So I think that you should stop and you should ignore it. But also this idea, like I saw you respond to some people, you know, like what if you told someone to kill themselves and they actually did it? How would you feel? And I think that because you're an empathetic human being, being you're a human being, uh, you think that this would make somebody feel bad. But I, I don't think you're right. I think that if you killed yourself, I think a lot of people would be happy about it. And I, I hate to say that. Because it's a fucking yeah. horrible truth, but I think it's actually the truth. I think people would celebrate it if you died. I'm sorry, Jesse. A couple of a couple of the people who emailed me, um, I I did that because in the past I found that if someone emails you in a moment of anger and you temporarily, you try to disarm them by humanizing yourself. I think Lindy West actually did this mm-hmm. with her trolls, and it, it made for a good article in this American Life segment. In the past, when I've done that. You can often at least get someone to be like, "Okay, I'm sorry. What I just said was too much." Really, my problem with your work is X, Y, Z. But but these people don't actually have a problem with your work because they haven't engaged with your work because you've said over and over again that you support the use of things like puberty blockers for well-diagnosed, thoroughly diagnosed children. And obviously, you don't support kids being taken away from their families yeah. For following medical guidelines, they haven't. They, it was just disturbing because, like, when I when, in this case, when I emailed those a couple people back, I was just like, "Yeah, that's what I said." Like, how would you feel if, like, I I did kill myself or someone did? They were like, "That would be good." So I, yeah. I real like this. I know, like the the fucking this weird Twitter guy and people like that. I know that they're like, um, they shield themselves in layers of irony and nihilism. But I I don't know how to interpret what they're doing except that they really want me to kill myself. And just to be clear, I'm not, I'm not suicidal. It's not going to happen. But someone else in my position, like maybe the next time you do that to someone or you encourage that sort of like oh really God. deranged dog pilot, they will kill themselves. I have an idea. What? Tell Putin to- Yes. <laughs> Wait, is that yes, really what your idea That's was? my idea. It's time to dogpile Putin. Everybody tell the man to kill himself at him, at P-U-T-I-N-V. I think that's his handle. Mm-hmm. Tell him to kill himself. At the real Putin- <laughs> At the Ukrainian president, dark, but I like it. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm like, I really am. Um, I should have just logged off that day, but it, it just seems like if I can't, if I can't take three minutes to say it's bad to tell people to kill themselves without being accused of like stealing the spotlight, especially when we're so obviously against not only this Texas thing but all these laws. Uh, I don't know. I think you should be able to say, "Don't tell people to kill themselves." I guess that's controversial now. I think that you should fake your death and then pop back out. Ha! Bull joke. <laughs> Got you. Gotcha. A lot of funny stuff this episode. What do you think about uh, this? I mean, the accusation against you is that your article in the in the Atlantic directly led to the adoption of or the proposal of laws like this. Oftentimes, the argument is because your your piece was cited in some legal case that it's your fault. Even if you have argued this entire time that you know well-assessed kids should have access to blockers, the go- the goal here and, and um, friend a close personal friend of the podcast Michael Hobbs did this directly in one of the one of the many threads about me. The goal is to make it so that if you have any questions about any aspect of puberty blockers or hormones, you're then responsible for any action anyone takes against trans kids. Okay, so by that logic, Michael Hobbs is also directly responsible for the, that kid having spinal problems at the age of 12. 
yeah, this kid is like dealing with the spinal problems of an 85 year old. That is directly Michael. He Hobbs shouldn't have done that. He not should being, not have done that. He really he shouldn't have done that. If, if I'm Michael Hobbs, I would do better and not nearly cripple a teenager. But uh, no, I, I find it to be such a ridiculous argument and that it's hard to even know where to respond. And it also, it takes the focus away from like, like, Ken, Ken Paxton is literally an elected official. You literally can, if you're in Texas, you can vote him out of office. No, 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 no. Why would we do this? Why would we do this? We could just yell at Jesse Single. The amount of energy, some fucking, and, and again, I don't, I feel weird saying this because I don't think any of these people are like functional enough to real life to do actual political activism. But the amount of people who like spend time just mad, how much time they spend mad at Barry Weiss versus doing anything productive, for example, because I think Weiss gets it more than I do. Um, anyway, it's very dumb. The idea that it- They should join the DSA. I got I got some grief in that Atlantic article for being very offering very um you know almost enthusiastic portraits of young people who had transitioned including a kid who got a double mastectomy at I think 16 and in that case for that kid I I I'm not an expert I thought it was right the kid seemed happy uh but Anyone who reads that article and thinks that you can draw a straight line from that article to something like what Texas did Sorry, that's fucking ridiculous. And I should say when people email me, well, first of all, I've spent like thousands, uh, whatever. I'm so tired of talking about my, it's. Every time you say you're tired, don't. I'm so tired, y'all. <laughs> fucking good. It's just, you online. have to repeat on Twitter. On If you're online, you have to fucking repeat yourself endlessly. And it's often stuff you've said four or five years prior. And it's just it the endless bad faith questioning never stops. But. I could just leave Twitter and I refuse to do so. So how can I complain about this? You cannot leave Twitter as your as your I'm boss. Gonna leave, I'm going to leave Twitter. You can only leave Twitter. The only time you can leave Twitter is when you are on the front lines in Ukraine. Exactly. Um, anyway, so back to the main issue. I, I know some of our listeners are more skeptical than me and maybe even you about youth medical transition. I, I really mm-hmm. hope you can differentiate, anyone listening, the difference between sort of attempts to do more research, which we should, or, or, you know, if you want to go further, maybe certain, I'm against all like hard age caps, but maybe something like that would at least address the developmental concerns. This is like a whole, this is tyranny. It's like a whole different category. And I, I really don't think, even if you have qualms about this kind of medical care, I think you should be against this. Cause if you're not against this, you're in favor of policy that really could rip apart happy families forever. And that's grotesque. And you're probably, you're, you're in part probably supporting this just to boost the career of a super corrupt politician in Texas. That's, I think that's really what this is about most of all. Yeah. There have to be ways to, uh, make this system safer for kids and with better outcomes that don't involve putting them in foster care. I, I'm confident that there are better ways. Sweden, Sweden might have some, some models there. Yeah. Lawsuits, reporting, things like that. Anyway, anything else? I think that's it. This has been Blocked Reported. Our show, as always, is produced with the help of Tracing Woodgrains. Thank you, Trace. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, maybe if people had been a little bit nicer to be on Twitter, Vladimir Putin wouldn't have been so emboldened. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, Vladimir Putin has a GeoCities-ass website. <laughs>